listening to The Nature Between Us. My name is Tessa and I'm your host. This podcast is produced on the land of the Bidjigal and Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge they are the traditional owners and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. For this episode, I had the immense pleasure of speaking with Wiradjuri Niemba woman, Dr. Virginia Marshall, about Aboriginal water rights, the Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin, and the commodification of water. Virginia is a practicing lawyer and a duty solicitor specializing in intellectual property and traditional knowledge. She's also an executive officer of the New South Wales Aboriginal Water Trust and was a member of the inaugural Indigenous Water Summit established by the National Water Commission. In addition, she was the first Indigenous postdoctoral fellow with ANU and a winner of the Stanner Award for her thesis, A Web of Aboriginal Water Rights, examining the competing Aboriginal claim for water property rights and interests in Australia. I'm immensely grateful for Virginia's generosity with this episode. Her time and her knowledge were incredible. This was one of my favourite conversations, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Virginia, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Tessa. Yiradilmarang. And we welcome everybody uh, today to listen to uh, some really uh, interesting issues that Indigenous peoples have in Australia uh, with water and and generally with uh, the environment. Yeah. So, yeah. So today we're talking about water. Um, We're talking about its value, its meaning, and of course, its management. Um, So I thought a nice place to start would be to have a better understanding about the connection to water that First Nations people have. Well, I I think what we're talking about here is tens of thousands of years that we've actually been looking after this country that wasn't called Australia. And each nation and in their language and their language group had defined boundaries and understandings and especially oral stories that connect with all things, why they are, what they are, and the plants and the animals, etc. The rivers, the mountains, the seas, all stem from those creation stories. And the most important thing to remember is that, you know, uh, for those creation stories to make sense to non-Indigenous people, is that all cultural, social order and our law um, is embedded in our language. So with every understanding of Aboriginal people's cultural identity and Torres Strait Islander peoples as well, um, there is a a long connection uh, that everything has order in a gendered environment of male and female. And that's that's so when you hear the stories of the Yongu people and and any other, um, what they call today, um, nation groups, uh, but we primarily say uh, language groups, so our identity is in, in this country is so finely tuned, so nuanced. And you can see that uh, when you read those archived records from um, 1788 and before, remember, there were many other uh, different cultural groups that were already surveying uh, and mapping out uh, much earlier than the British uh, and also meeting uh, Aboriginal peoples uh, at that time and making drawings of them and and understanding that uh, this place definitely was inhabited and definitely was a very old culture. So, you know, our cultural identity is really connected to who we are, 
salt water, bitter water, freshwater peoples, people um, of what people generally call in science desert. Well, to people that live in those areas, it's not desert, it's actually home. So I think that that's what we've got to remember is that Aboriginal identity and the cultural authority really stems from our place in that relationship. And it's very important to remember that, you know, water in some communities, creation stories was first and then the land. So we have to remember that um, in a Western view, we see land as much more important because, you know, a Western view can divide it up, do cadastral mapping and cut, you know, pieces of that land up. As you can see, wherever you're living today in, in suburban or urban or rural uh, Australia, that's what it is, whether it's uh, farms or um, crown land, all of that surveyed land has been cut up. And also that's also reduced the identity that uh, Aboriginal peoples uh, can carry out and exercise in law in, in many places because of that Western view of ownership. So I think that um, what we've got to remember that water is, is extremely important, not only um, to have as uh, fresh drinking water and um, the sustainable development goals point that out in international um, standards and principles. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're failing in that and we'll talk about this a bit later. But that's basically the, the, the centre of how an Aboriginal understanding of all things in that web of water rights. Yeah. Yeah, it seems we've fallen into a very simplistic kind of viewpoint where water is only valuable when it's extracted yeah well that's right you know I mean I, th that's something that I really looked in uh, into in in my researching of um, my doctoral thesis was the incredible hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that huge companies that you normally see um, when you know you're looking for a drink you're going in for uh, something to eat and you'll see that 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 manufacturer that that corporation is right there in front and center and many others now are making a huge profits out of extracting water fresh water groundwater and putting it into plastic so we can drink bottled water so We've got to remember that message really to push back. It's not only on the plastics and the messages that that brings to environmental damage, but it's also the extraction of water. And I've really been saying this for a number of years is that when you're actually uh, picking that water up and, and, and uh, drinking it, you, you don't know where the origin of that water comes from. You don't know whether it's been over-extracted. Um, you don't know whether the Aboriginal peoples of the area are actually supporting that uh, extraction of groundwater so that's a very complicated space for people to say well you know I need water but let me on the other side think well is this socially responsible and are these corporations being socially responsible and even culturally appropriate so I think that you know we've got to reflect more on the, the water itself um, because we've tackled the plastic issue of, of bottled water so I think that's extremely important because groundwater is not unlimited. And we know that um, there's, the science can only do so much, but over-extraction is so easy to happen in such a dry continent. And because of increasing heat intensities and also the impacts of flooding and, and other hazards that we know that's a part of climate change. So that's why it's even more um, important to really be generally aware of our footprint 
on this planet, on this country. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about extraction and, and over-extraction, how is water currently being managed and protected in Australia? I know that we have, we have a Commonwealth Water Act, um, but that really only applies to the, the Murray-Darling, which um, spans over a number of states. So is water management up to individual states? Okay, this is, this is the whole idea that we have to look firstly at the way Australia and the history of the colonies and then federation. So we know that New South Wales was the first colony. And, of course, um, there was staggered colonisation at different times uh, across Australia. So because of those colonies and the status of the debate during those 1890s for constitutional relationships that uh, would then create a commonwealth and the, the new proposed commonwealth would then have to uh, work out, which they did, on whether the colonies would take over the day-to-day -day running of a number of issues, including water, or where would the responsibility be for the Commonwealth? So the Commonwealth today in our Australian constitution is that it has administrative responsibilities for water and the state really have the day-to-day -day running and also the ability then to work towards the National Water Initiative. They're not compelled to do so. It's, it is then up to the jurisdictions um, and that means the states to actually go ahead with change to meet the National Water Initiative. And even though that there's an intergovernmental agreement between uh, the states, the territories and the Commonwealth, and that has been in place for a number of years, that it's still not a really well-run space. Um, it's not well-managed because we've seen when the National Water Commission was established and of course then dismantled during the Abbott era, that um, the National Water Commission had a number of reports that came uh, every couple of years, biennial reporting. And what that would do is that it would uh, give information vo volunteered by the jurisdictions on how they've progressed to meet the expectations of the National Water Initiative. And um, I know many times I'd read those biennial reports put out by the National Water Commission and on Indigenous water issues, it was very poor. And at times there was really no action uh, taken by uh, the states and very poor response by the Murray-Darling Basin authorities. So, you know, that's problematic, the relationship, this whole idea of cooperative federalism, where, you know, the jurisdictions uh, to work with the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth to work with um, the other jurisdictions is in some ways, especially with water, it's a very politicised area of policy because uh, the stakeholders that have always had um, great power have been uh, farmers and pastoralists and then increasing after that um, has been irrigators uh, and that was also you know the, the development of irrigation in Australia and then also the increasing power of stakeholders in mining so you know, there's a lot of pushback in in those jurisdictions who are cautious about uh, not 
in, in other words, using a, a vernacular, upsetting the apple cart. So they're, they're afraid of upsetting um, particular stakeholder groups. And that becomes very politicised for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because I've been in many roundtables and committees uh, where groups are very reluctant who aren't uh, Indigenous to allow water to be taken and used for other uh, issues such as environmental water. We can see that today, that that's a very politicised area, but also where Aboriginal people are seeking cultural water, it's also that stakeholders see that as long as their water allocation or entitlements don't change, they are more likely to agree or allow um, some form of cultural uh, use. However, it's on the basis that uh, Aboriginal people don't affect other stakeholders' use. And that's very difficult because we know the history of water in this place, in Australia, means that Aboriginal people didn't have Western authority under uh, laws here. And it was that Aboriginal people went through um, extermination policies, they went through assimilation policies, and up until 1967, um, even around uh, different areas of Australia, it was a very difficult history for Aboriginal peoples to be recognised as human beings. We were still under the Flora and Fauna Act. And even post-1967, it's been a very slow um, movement to actually reconstruct the theft of water. And we can see that Marbo shook up uh, the system in relation to land and it's not perfect and it's a very complex system in itself. So you can see the history of Australia didn't allow for Aboriginal people to really be recognised as they have in the United States as, as a separate functioning nation where the federal government in the US have a fiduciary duty to look after and work together on treaties with native peoples. And next door we see, you know, um, New Zealand, which was uh, a colony of New South Wales prior to the Waitangi Treaty. There was also an impetus to strike up a treaty because there were, uh, certainly France was very interested in um, the Southern Island of New Zealand. And there was another political position where that treaty was formed, but at the same time, no treaty was formed with Indigenous peoples of Australia. So you can tell that we're actually trying to go back now. And what I would, would say that the best um, thing is to have a, a, a national audit of all of the water allocated and unallocated, such as national parks and, and other areas. So Aboriginal people can reclaim and have restored the water that was actually taken from them. And, you know, this is no different than, you know, some analogy with criminal law. You know, in goods in custody, and my, my background is as a criminal defence lawyer, that when goods in custody occurs, you know, there might be property that's in a, a backpack, for example, but it, it doesn't matter. The original person that, that actually had taken those goods and then that backpack with those goods gets passed on to one, two, three, four people, it's still stolen and remains that way. So the responsibility um, to all of those people and the last receiver of that backpack and the stolen property, it's still stolen. So what we have to look at is that 
that's the case of water in Australia. This hasn't been addressed. Uh, and there's only been New South Wales that's uh, New South Wales that has in their uh, Water Management Act addressed a cultural use of water, but it was very uh, poorly designed. It was only 10 megalitres, which is very, very limited, and it was only once a year. So we can see because of the history of Australia that many other stakeholders continue to benefit from this system that's been put in place in those early days of Australia. And in that 100 years of management, for example, in Queensland and, and New South Wales and of course, other states um, were just at the same time still giving water away for free. And we know in the Northern Territory, the government gave away a, a 40,000 megalitre licence to an agribusiness free of charge. So Aboriginal people were very upset that even today we're still giving away water, but it's Aboriginal people's water. So, you know, there's a difficult situation that um, people really need to be front and centre with truth-telling and they need to understand that they have to make things right. And this is the only way to deal with that analogy with stolen goods because if we don't deal with it, we're just going to have continued disadvantaged and impoverished um, Aboriginal people. Uh, as we know, because water's been commodified since 2004, that Aboriginal peoples do not have that wealth, the inherited wealth that's come from this country and people have had advantages from through all of those different eras of, you know, sheep and cattle running, cropping. There's incredible opportunities that have been experienced by stakeholders in those industries and mining today, for example, those resources are Aboriginal resources. And under the Native Title Act, for example, Aboriginal people don't get to to have and retain those resources as they do in the States, in the United States. So you can tell that there's got to be a national audit. There's got to be an audit within the state jurisdictions as well that can clearly right this wrong. We look at compensation for so many different issues, whether it's personal injury, um, whether we look at compensation for stolen wages, or people that have been abused. Um, for example, non-Indigenous people were brought over here in, as young kids and um, worked on farms. Um, and, and we know the story where those young people um, generally were abused. And, you know, compensation, again, we have victims' compensation for secondary um, and also primary compensation where someone has been in that situation that they've been harmed in some way. So we have that victim's compensation, but there is, there's no system at the moment, Tessa, with water that's addressing this. And I think that that really is a huge gap. And I know I, as the co-chair of the National Water Initiative with um, Associate Professor Brad Mogridge and an incredible committee of hardworking members, Indigenous members, that you know, we feel that um, this is a really important time that we need to have that truth telling. And I think we need to have um, understanding and compassion from all these other stakeholders that really had great advantage because Indigenous people have not been regarded as human beings for a very long time. And as I said, you know, we're under the Flora and Fauna Act um, for a very long time and even post-1967. Mm. How many of these recommendations um, that you're speaking about now in terms of like a national water audit um, and weaving Indigenous rights 
How many of these made their way into the 2019 Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin? Because I know your, a lot of your research and work um, was integrated into that investigation. Yeah, well, we were very fortunate to have Brett Walker, QC, Senior Counsel, that was the Commissioner for the uh, Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling South Australia. And the unique insight the Commissioner brought was uh, very, very helpful to understand the complex issues. And and as the Commissioner acknowledged, there is a a very political uh, and politicised issue around water in Australia. So having that chapter uh, Aboriginal engagement, which was unique, was a chapter in the uh, report by the Commissioner, was so helpful. It really provided that Aboriginal people have not fared well, as I've mentioned to you, um, in uh, water and have not fared well in their engagement or any decision-making that's been provided to um, by Aboriginal people in South Australia, that it's, it's a failure not only of successive governments but also um, current governments really to listen to Aboriginal people and the wealth of knowledge on how to look after water and how not to contaminate water, that water is, is, is used in a, a cultural um, way that ensures that it, it's there for generations. But, you know, the Western view, as, as uh, the Commissioner pointed out, of a number of the policies that are uh, there as... Uh, an oversight to how water should be used in Australia, especially South Australia, um, is also quite a gap. So I think that that was wonderful to get recognised for my research as seminal um, in this area. And I think that 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 was was terrific. But the most important thing was that Aboriginal people were recognised for their knowledge, for their care, um, and also uh, that that Aboriginal people are not being included um, in uh, water where their their cultural obligations is to exercise those rights, to care for, to look after um, and to continue to use. Uh, And so I think that that was extremely important and and it will go down as one of the most important uh, Royal Commissions in in relation to water. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the, the Mitchell River case down in, is it Ganai Kanai uh, country in Victoria? Yes, yes. Um, because I read that they, there was a recent allocation of two gigalitres to that First Nations group. Do you, do you see this as a landmark win or is this kind of perpetuating this, the, the issues that, that you have been speaking about already? Yeah, no, I, I did say that some of my colleagues thought it was a landmark, but it's not. And, and the thing is that the, the generosity of reclaiming and restoring that water is really not taken seriously enough. What we've got to put into perspective is, is, is that Aboriginal people aren't seeking anything that isn't or shouldn't have been restored many, many years ago. So we're getting this piecemeal response. So there's might be some water that's given there. It might be some water that's given in Tasmania, for example, or, or other places. But the, the, the small amount of that water is not enough. In Victoria, 
<clears throat> they've recently had water that's been given to farmers and, and not to Aboriginal people. There was no discussion with them. So, you know, it isn't a win, really. It's, it's, it's just, um, as we've seen with the protection of koalas currently, um, there's such a, a huge um, problem with the way that we develop and we don't retain habitats for um, really amazing animals that you don't get anywhere else in the world. Um, and we've got a biodiversity hotspot in Australia that we, we, don't seem, uh, we don't seem to be very conscious about the implications it has across Australia. And I think we, we don't really understand that just one provision of, of water for one uh, language group in Victoria doesn't address the whole impact that water theft has had on Indigenous peoples of Australia. So it isn't a landmark. What it would be is if all of the, the states and territories and the Commonwealth and the Murray-Darling Basin Authority would say, look, we actually do agree with, with truth-telling and part of that means that we have to be really uh, upfront and honest that Aboriginal uh, people and Torres Strait Islander people need to have the water restored to them and it needs to be a national approach. So, you know, I think that, that that's really... The crux of it yeah the most important thing is is not to see um, these examples as a win usually they're very thick politics underneath and it's it's just basically a throwaway that's how i see it you know sitting and, and looking at the national water initiative um as it is and and how uh, aboriginal people would would hope it would be uh, improved and developed and and really thoroughly engaged with uh, restoring water to Aboriginal people in Australia takes a lot of work, but it also takes the ability to see that the past 200 years of history has really uh, tried to erase Aboriginal people's authority and also their use of water and, and have an economic livelihood. Because, you know, Australians know that without a, a good job, you won't be able to look after your family, you won't be able to aspire to have home ownership, you won't be able to school your children, you know, and, and also um, just a satisfaction and peace of mind of not being in debt. So I think Australians are very aware of that. But what, what we've got to understand is that when we're denying economic livelihoods in water and cultural water, uh, we're also denying Aboriginal peoples a way out of disadvantaged, uh, a way out of, of terrible chronic health conditions that are linked to, to disadvantage. Um, the the, the ch Aboriginal children that won't be able to aspire to um, uh, other people's expectations in getting a, a great uh, job in, in having um, the schooling and where they want to be schooled at um, for their families to have good health and be, be debt free. You know, all of those examples that we've talked about earlier, where Aboriginal peoples have been exterminated or assimilated, or, you know, the, the attempts to civilise um, Aboriginality out of Aboriginal people. And we can read many, many books about that and, and um, hear from people who have experienced that firsthand, you know, that takes a terrible toll on people. And also, I think that you've got to remember that many Aboriginal women in those early station days, you know, many of the, the station owners and, and the, uh, 
the property owners and the workers um, were responsible for, for children um, being born and, and took no responsibility for, for the life of that child. And, and that's really inherited poverty. You know, we can even look back in families and see that, you know, that lack of inherited wealth and, and many of um, their relatives are, you know, billionaires or um, they're, they're, they're running really big industries and international and national industries and they're common people known um, to, to many Aboriginal people. So I think that, you know, that inherited poverty is so serious and, and that's why we've really got to look at water um, as not only a basic under international standards and principles uh, that we have to actually um, really increase it to a special measure. We have to uh, look at this as we did with um, the Native Title Act. It was, it's a social justice movement uh, and it's really putting Aboriginal peoples where they should have been uh, one or 200 years ago. That is so important because if we can do that, uh, and we can look at uh, those issues through the human rights lens, uh, we can make some change. Instead of politicising it and then those who have inherited those benefits and the stakeholders that exist today that are continuing to enjoy those benefits, there needs to be a very serious, honest discussion nationally um, that it's not, it's not giving away, it's actually restoring. That's, that's the, the word that I'd really like to hear. It's restoration. And we hear that um, in many of faith-based organisations when they're trying to have relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So it's restoring faith. It's restoring justice. And, and that's where we're up to with water. This is such a huge issue. And, and we're just not really addressing um, the important history of why it's all gone wrong. Mm. It kind of seems like potentially a whole of country plan with Indigenous Aboriginal people at the management level all the way through is, you know, on top of a national water audit is kind of what is needed. Is that, would that be one of your recommendations? Yeah, it would be, it would be recommendations. And I remember when uh, I actually um, published my doctoral thesis as that overturning Aquinalish, I, I did put a number of recommendations in there and, and they still stand. And, and one of them, you know, which is really important is having an Aboriginal ontological framework. So, you know, our ways of know, knowing and being, our values in water, they need to be legally recognised in legislation. Um, culturally appropriate definitions on um, and in native title legislation, culturally appropriate definitions for Aboriginal land and waters is important. Um, having national water reforms that actually include um, leadership from Aboriginal communities is really important. Perpetuity in water allocations, uh, reserve water rights regime uh, for Aboriginal people first and not as a last resort. You know, acknowledging mm. that special association for Aboriginal people to water. Um, having Aboriginal people involved in the water market. Um, which it's so expensive because it's been commodified that that makes it very difficult. Um, you know, making sure that communal uh, water rights are recognised, that, you know, we have national water policy that actually includes us in the national water legislation. In the Commonwealth, um, there's a bare minimum of recognition of Aboriginal people. And mm. for many, many states, um, uh, they're also lacking 
uh, even uh, a discussion with Aboriginal people. And the one thing that I'll say that's really important that we don't separate the land and the water, Tessa. That's the issue with the Western system that was developed, you know, from 2004 under the Howard regime, is that, you know, the separation of land and water is an anathema to an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. It doesn't separate. So, you know, the whole idea is that we're working with um, a water space, water legislation, water policy that really uh, front and centre has ignored Aboriginal peoples and, and their view of uh, a cultural understanding of water. So that was tossed out in 2004. So, you know, human rights are really important. And, and you know, I think that a lot of young people really get that because I'm very active in the climate change area as well um, because it's related to water and it's very important. And a lot of young people went on strike for uh, really good reasons. And that was because they could see um, that this has to stop. We have to have climate change recognised. We have to have human rights recognised. So I think that a lot of young people really understand that you know we can't wait and social justice is really important. So I think it's going to be um, up to everybody doing what they can individually. And as I said, you know, just stop drinking bottled water, you know, refuse it at, at events because we don't know where it comes from. We don't know how it's impacting on Aboriginal people. Um, you know, that's really important. So we can take an individual stand um, and we can also um, do it in the, the assignments. You know, we can respond to it in the assignments that we have for university. Um, you know, we can seek out Aboriginal people um, and Torres Strait Islander people who can provide some personal communication and understanding of these issues. So I think it's just taking that personal responsibility of mm. making a difference. I think that's very powerful and young people really know that and, and that is just so wonderful. Thank you, Virginia, for your wisdom and truth-telling. You can keep up to date with her work via the Australian National University School of Regulation and Global Governance. And a reminder to go in the running for the prize pack giveaway from Spooked Kooks, FPR and Camp Cove Swim. All you have to do is subscribe to the pod, leave a rating and review and follow all four Insta accounts. And a winner will be picked at random at the end of the season. Until next step... Stay curious.